Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian John Meacham was one of four men who eulogized President George H.W. Bush at funeral services at the National Cathedral earlier this week. He was in lofty company. George W. Bush, former U.S. Senator Alan Simpson, and the former Prime Minister of Canada Brian Mulroney were the others asked to speak. Meacham and Bush 41 had known each other for two decades. I first met President Bush in 1998, and I remember thinking even then, 17 years ago, that George Bush was a much more complicated and interesting figure than most people might think. Meacham would learn just how much more depth there was to the former president when Bush invited him to listen to the many hours of a private audio diary that he'd kept for years. The recordings featured hour upon hour of the president's private thoughts about his personal life and the events in history he helped shape over a period of some three decades. It was those recordings that convinced Meacham to write Destiny and Power, the American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush. I talked with Meacham in January 2016, shortly after his Bush biography was published. And as we come to the end of a week that celebrated the life of George H.W. Bush, the Political Rewind team and I wanted to share it with you again. John Meacham, thank you for coming in to be on Two-Way Street. It's really great to have you here. Thank you for having me. It it strikes me that George H.W. Bush was very canny in allowing you complete access to his uh, tapes because we all know this is the president who never wrote a memoir himself. Right. And although you are certainly not writing his memoir because there's, you're taking a stance independent of mm-hmm. him and commenting on his life and his performance in various uh, positions he held, on the other hand, it does give him this opportunity to get this out without having to put his name on a book. Without having, well, exactly. You know, it, it was a, it's a short shortcut, I guess. It is canny. I was a good bet. I was the editor of Newsweek, uh, which was not a uh, particularly Bush-friendly yeah. vehicle. And also, the other thing about the Bushes is they're very comfortable. George and Barbara Bush both are very comfortable with what they did, and their view is that a fair-minded historical take will produce a fairly balanced uh, portrait of, of, of their place in history, uh, of his place in history. It was tough sometimes to decide where to let him tell the story because you do have him talking. That's the other thing about this diary is it's not written, which gives you a, sort of an edit function, obviously, as you're, as you're write, make, writing it. But he did talk. It would be late at night. It would be early in the morning. He sometimes sounds like death itself. He's just whipped. You know, the election night, 1992, it's a really tough, tough time. But it's a unique historical document. And so what, what I tried to do was let him create the ethos, put us in a way as close to the presidency as, as I've been with the diary, but still render the judgments that need to be rendered. So um, what came first? Your decision that he was an appropriate subject for a biography, and then you began talking and negotiating over getting access to his diaries, or did they? Did you talk to him and he said, "You know, I'd be willing if you want to write a book about it to work with you." Uh, a little bit in between. I realized pretty quickly after meeting him in 1998 that I would want to write about him at some point, and. When I went to him with the concrete idea, what I wanted really, stupidly, because I, I hadn't quite focused on the diary as a, as a resource at the early on, early early on, is I wanted him to talk. The initial agreement was that it would be posthumous, mm-hmm. so I thought that might encourage more candor. And interestingly, sort of a classic George Bush moment. What he said was, "Are you sure there's? What if you just find an empty deck of cards?" Yeah. So it's a classic Bushism because it's it's a malapropism. He, what he meant was, what what if you find out I'm not playing with a full deck or I'm an empty suit? And he said, well, you should look at the diary. I was about three pages in when I realized it was it was historical gold. 
And so, what were the first things you read? Uh, it was he's he's the president elect. He's at Camp David. He is complaining because Nancy Reagan has not shown Barbara the living quarters of the White House, and that was it for me. Uh, <laughs> you had me at hello. Uh, you had me at the first Nancy Reagan line. And also, uh, on a serious note, he had just gotten his briefing on his actual responsibilities in the operational code of nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. and talks about how just how stark and how um, sobering that briefing was. And even as vice president, uh, it felt different uh, to him. So, and that was page, literally the first three pages. One thing I thought about was just, was doing sort of what my my friend Michael Beschloss did with the the Johnson tapes and just editing the diaries. Uh, But as I went through the diary and the president agreed to talk, I realized that a biography was worth the deep dive. And, the only condition now is that I am going to publish the diaries, but those have to be posthumous. One of the things that's uh, fascinating to me about your book, I've had people who have said, well, who's, who, what are you reading? Who's coming in to do your show? And your name comes up in this book. And there are people who say, well, hmm, why would I want to read about George Herbert right. Walker Bush? So those of us who are lucky enough to cover politics and, and cover presidential politics particularly, we get this unique opportunity to really take the measure of the people, quite separate from the speeches they give and their and their talking points and even their stand on issues, we get an opportunity, don't you agree, yep. to take a measure of these people. And my answer to those folks who've wondered why a book about George H.W. Bush is he's so much more interesting and complex mm-hmm. than you have any idea. And I think you believe that to be true now that you've really uh, uh, done this book. Yeah, well, they, I, I agree completely. I, I was one of those people 20 years ago. I just I hadn't focused on him very much. Weirdly, as a president of the United States, people had not. And when they did in 1992, they found him wanting. Yeah. You know, 1992 was a perfect storm of bad news for, for George Bush. But I found the more time I spent around him, I found a quiet, persistent charisma. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny. Early on, I was uh, talking to one of your uh, colleagues in public broadcasting, and they said, you know, I've heard you say that George Bush is charismatic, and I've asked around the office, and no one agrees. <laughs> and I said, well, have they ever met him? And to his credit, he said, no. It's just a different kind of, uh, it's a different kind of charisma. It's not John Kennedy. It's not Ronald Reagan. Certainly but, not Bill Clinton. And it's not, oh, my <laughs> Lord, no. And it's not, and, and let's not even talk about the current crowd. So I, I understand the skepticism about this, but in a way, my journey, which sounds pretentious, I don't mean it that way, but but my odyssey in this as well was going from wondering why one would want to read about him to wanting to write about him and feeling really as though I don't think you can under I know you can't understand modern modern American politics without understanding this man. Yeah. You say at one point that his was one of the great American lives, strong parents, sparkling education, heroic service in World War II, congressman. And you then go on and talk about his accomplishments in the White House. He peacefully ended the communist threat, secured the heart of, of Europe, struggled to end chaos in the Middle East. And that's not even mentioning his domestic accomplishments, like passing the Americans with Disabilities Act, among other things. And these are the things we easily overlook about mm-hmm. about. George Bush. His story is the story of great Americans in the middle of the 20th century. Absolutely. And and for good and for bad. Uh, there's the right rise of the right wing in the Republican Party. There's the um, the end of compromise as a uh, as a reasonable Washington phenomena. Uh, there's um, you know, he moved south and west uh, right after graduating from Yale, just as the political gravity of the country was moving south and west. Uh, if he had stayed in New England, we would not be sitting here talking about it. Yeah, he ended up in Houston, of course. He ended up in, uh, in the oil business. Exactly. And uh, if he hadn't gone to Texas, he wouldn't have been president. If he hadn't married Barbara Bush, he wouldn't have been president. Uh, but this is a man who embodies the story of American power in the last 50 years and more. When you go back through his family, his father was a senator. His grandfathers uh, were Gilded Age barons. Um, he had a great-grandfather who was an Episcopal priest who lost his faith, which seems kind of redundant. 
but you, it's just a, it's a big American story. I, I chose the subtitle with, with great care. Um, it is an American odyssey. He was also driven from the time he was very, very young to be intensely competitive. Talk about tree climbing in the bush house. Oh, <laughs> uh, they were expected. It's funny. I, there was Prescott Jr., George, Jonathan, uh, Nancy, and uh, Bucky. Uh, those were the Bush children, the children of Prescott and Dorothy Walker Bush. And uh, there were tall trees on their land, on their in their yard on Grove Lane in Greenwich. And it was just an ambient expectation that the children would go out and climb to the top of the trees. <laughs> and it wasn't, it was just expected. And at one point, a neighbor comes over and says, Mrs. Bush, the children might fall. And she says, well, you have to learn somehow. Um, <laughs> Mrs. Bush learned how to swim by being thrown in the Atlantic Ocean uh, by one of her Walker uncles. Uh, she once broke her wrist in the middle of a tennis match, continued playing, and won. <laughs> Uh, you know, these are, these are tough, tough people. And it was a Victorian, Edwardian kind of muscular Christianity. Uh, it was athletics were a maker and a measure of, uh, of character. Yeah, yeah. So he's intensely competitive. At the same time, uh, he is, and he's being told by his family that winning is totally. hugely important. It's everything in some be, ways. Being told, uh, just to, to add a level of nuance here, as John Kerry would say. Uh, uh, I think that love in the Bush household was unconditional, but that admiration and respect were earned. And I don't think they ever sat down and said, this is what you've got to do. I think it was all the more powerful for being, again, ambient uh, and unspoken uh, because you wanted to be the number one boy because that was the way you were admired, respected, deferred to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we all know, I think, the story that uh, his mother uh, cautioned him over and over again, don't talk about yourself. Right. I mean, that, that's a relatively well-known sure. aspect of his bringing, uh, upbringing, which is probably one of the reasons there were times on the campaign trail, in, in the presidential uh, campaign trail, uh, that he was having trouble. Uh, yeah. knowing how to talk about himself. Right? Well, you know, Peggy Noonan finally stopped using the first-person pronoun in the speeches. She would just say, went to Congress, you know, moved to Texas, uh, served in China, uh, just avoided the first-person pronoun altogether. <laughs> all uh, but, you, you know, I asked him one morning uh, in the course of— we did interviews from 2006 until 2015 for this book. Um, one morning in Houston, I asked him, I said, you know, why, you know, what was it? Why, what, what made you go? And he said, service. And he always, he always said that. Service was the motivating force. And I said, well, that's fine, Mr. President, but you know, you could have opened a soup kitchen. You know, <laughs> you, you saw ultimate authority in a nuclear age. There's something more going on. And he sort of went, eh. Six hours later, uh, we were having a drink and, at the Bush's house. Uh, and without reference to the fact that he was answering a question that had been asked six hours uh, earlier, he suddenly sort of perks up and says, be number one, be the captain of the team, do well, be number one. In some ways that's bad, but in some ways it's not. Mm -hmm. And so he, 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 he confessed to it uh, ultimately. And I do think it was, was it competition for competition's sake is, is, is an interesting question. And, I think that part of the culture in which you grew up is the answer is yes. Um, it's when you marry the competitiveness to the service, to the idea that to whom much is given, much is expected, uh, that you get the political path. The book is filled with so many stories, and you've told his life story uh, so well uh, that we are not going to cover all this that ground. But I would really love to focus on some key uh, uh, parts of his life with you that I, I think are important to who he was and is. And of course, one of them is his service in World War II. Mm -hmm. Pearl Harbor happened while he was still in high school. In high school, right? So what happened yeah. when he heard the news about Pearl December, Harbor? Sunday, December 7th, 1941. He's walking across, middle, middle of the afternoon, he's walking across Phillips Academy, Andover, uh, Massachusetts, boarding school. Uh, he's in his fifth year because he had been so sick. He uh, had been suffered from a staph infection uh, and been uh, hospitalized for a long time. Um, he um, 
immediately wants to sign up, immediately wants to serve. He told me, as only George Bush could put it, it was a red, white, and blue thing. Yeah. You know, your country's been attacked. Get into it. Uh, and he wanted to, he, he considered, he told me, going into the Royal Canadian Air Force because the United Kingdom obviously had been at war since September 1st, 1939. Um, it was prevailed upon to wait until June of 42. On June 12th, 1942, he turned 18. He graduated from high school, and he became an enlistee of the United States Navy, uh, wanted to be a carrier-based pilot, uh, became the youngest flying officer in the Navy. Uh, on September 2nd, 1944, uh, he was shot down over Chichijima, an island in the Bonin it Islands. Was a, um, this target was a target they'd tried to take out previously. The day before. Correct? And they couldn't. It was a radio tower, transmitter tower. Very important in the, in the chain of islands, going back to the home islands. They knew, after what they'd experienced the first time, that going back this second time was very, very dangerous. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, the mortality rate was incredibly high on these jobs. I mean, the, the, this, is, this is early carrier aviation. Um, and he's flying a torpedo Avenger bomber, a uh, big slow plane. Uh, he gets hit, sees the wings go up in flames. The cockpit fills with smoke. Uh, he finishes the mission, though. He goes in. He, he gets the tower. He gets the tower. He <laughs> drops the bombs. He goes out to sea. Uh, it turns out he's lost his two crewmates, whom he tries to uh, help escape. Uh die. Uh, he plunges deep into the sea. He's nearly decapitated coming out of the plane. Um, fortunately, his life raft landed close enough to him that he could get a, flop aboard it. Yeah. Uh, he was out there for about four hours um, and was then rescued by, by a submarine. He had uh, the key question out of that experience uh, is he said, why was I spared? Uh, what, you know, and I think that his life ever since then has been one long attempt to prove himself commensurate with the sacrifice of Del Delaney and Ted White. You quote Bush uh, as saying of that experience at Chichijima, it was transforming. Transforming in the sense that you realize how close death can be. You realize painstakingly so the responsibility you just had for the life of someone else. He's 20 years old. Amazing. 20 years old. And... I mean, it just doesn't happen in, our, in, in the current culture. But there he is. Uh, he's just turned 20 uh, in June. This was September. Uh, had the lives of others in his hands. And the rest of his life, he had other people's lives in his hands, whether it was a payroll in the oil business or his family or ultimately all of us. We're going to take a break right now. When we come back, more about the life of George H.W. Bush with his biographer and eulogizer, John Meacham. Welcome back to this special edition of Political Rewind. As we come to the end of the week in which the nation mourned the death and celebrated the life of the 41st president of the United States, we're revisiting a conversation I had with presidential historian John Meacham. Meacham and I talked in January of 16, shortly after the publication of Destiny and Power, the American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush. Meacham was one of four men who eulogized President Bush at the funeral service at the National Cathedral earlier this week. His father, Prescott Bush, who, by the way, I, you, he said, what is he, what's the exact quote? Dad, tall, you, you tall, say. scary, respected. <laughs> tall, scary, respected. Very big guy. Very big guy. <laughs> Six four. So, so his dad decides to run for the uh, United States Senate. He's a moderate Republican, right? Right. Yep. But here's what I think is is funny about that, and he's elected. But I've heard you on a number of occasions joke about the fact that you being in the room with the Bushes is just a, a it's like a wasp fest. <laughs> <laughs> wasp on wasp therapy. Yeah. yeah. And. Uh, so I thought about that when I read you quoted the lyrics of one of Prescott Bush's. This is a oh, yes. campaign song. Yes, the campaign song. Can yes. I read it? Please, please. This was actually a campaign song. This was out there, you know, to try to convince the, the, the good people of Connecticut that this was their man. <laughs> and, I, and I read it because it illuminates you're talking about uh, the WASP uh, uh, culture. <laughs> Some churchmen think his program odd. First Yale, now country. When for God? 
they really shouldn't give up hope. In 10 years more, he may be pope. Well, that's a little out of keeping. <laughs> his speeches, like his rise, will be right down the center of the T. His only leftist tendency is when he hooks around the tree. Boy, that says it all, John. <laughs> uh, Senator Bush was a uh, was Eisenhower's favorite golfing partner yeah. in the Senate. Uh, it, what he it, essentially what, what he loved is a Prescott Bush was a fabulous golfer. Uh, was one thing, but the other thing is that Eisenhower appreciated that Bush didn't want to talk business, and that if he did say something, if Eisenhower did say something, it would never leak. So like father, like son. Uh, his father adored the Senate uh, and was a moderate to liberal Republican, uh, was part of a move to get Nixon off the ticket in 56 mm-hmm. with Eisenhower. Um, he uh, was uh, fairly progressive on civil rights. He was a federal uh, interstate highway guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, most significantly uh, was a uh, someone who spoke out against Joe McCarthy early. So... In 1941, George meets at a Christmas dance at the Greenwich Country Club. Right. Uh, Barbara Pierce. Barbara Pierce. Who was Barbara Pierce in those days? What kind of Barbara, what, what was she in those she days? Was a, uh, she was a debutante girl uh, from Rye, New York. Her father was the publisher of McCall's, a uh, big publishing company. Uh, she was uh, wearing a red and green holiday dress. Uh, Bush never remembered anything, uh, but he did remember that. Uh, he asked, asked her to dance and uh, asked to be introduced to her, asked her to dance. Uh, they were, I think they were going to waltz, and he said, I don't waltz. And so they sat down and started talking, and as Mrs. Bush says, George has since joked that I haven't stopped talking since. <laughs> you, uh, you report that on the first date, he borrowed an Oldsmobile because it had a radio in it. Why did he want a radio in To the fill any uncomfortable silences, <laughs> not realizing that Mrs. Bush would never, <laughs> never allow an uncomfortable silence. And that was it. That was it. That was it. Uh, they married on June, January 6, 1945. Um, he was getting ready. This is something else we forget. He was getting ready to go back uh, in 1945 for the invasion of the home islands yeah. when the bomb was dropped in VJ Day. Uh, they were in Norfolk. He had rejoined his squadron. Uh, and then uh, George W. was born in 1946. In there some ways, despite the sweep of his life, of your biography of him, that the very heart of this book is the story of Robin. Yeah. Talk about Robin a little bit. Who Uh, was she? Born in 1949, Pauline Robinson Bush uh, was uh, their second child. Uh, after George W. Uh, when she was four years old, she was lethargic and bruising. Uh, they were living in Midland, Texas at the time. Uh, Mrs. Bush took her to the pediatrician. The pediatrician diagnosed her with leukemia. Uh, Bush was at the Ector County Courthouse checking on oil leases when Barbara called and said, we have to go to the doctor. Um, and the doctor was crying and could barely control herself as she told the Bushes. And they'd never, they'd never heard the word leukemia before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she, he then picks up the phone and calls. Uh, I mean, the doctor in Midland says, just take her home and make her comfortable and she'll be gone in a few months. Uh, Bush refuses that, uh, calls his uncle, John Walker, who was a doctor uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, head of Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. They took her to New York. Um, and she lived about six or seven months after that, died in early October 1953. Um, and they will be, both Bushes will be buried with Robin. Uh, they, Robin was buried in Greenwich. Well, let's, let's talk about that, because there's a very moving story as Robin is dying. Prescott Bush get, comes to Barbara Bush and says, oh, I, I've, I've bought a burial plot, my burial plot, and I want to show it to you. Right, right? exactly. Uh, so so uh, Senator Bush uh, exactly says to Barbara, I want to show you I bought this for, for me and, and Dottie, uh, Mrs. Bush. Uh, but Barbara realizes that what he's done is he's bought it for Robin. Yeah. And uh, she is buried there, ultimately. And um, But in the then about... S- 50 years later uh, or so, right after when the president's burial plot at College Station has been prepared, they, um, they bring her back and uh, bring her to Texas and reinter her there. You were given a letter among many of the papers you saw of his 
Why did he write this letter? Who is he writing to? Yeah, this, uh, this is a letter that he wrote in the late 1950s. Uh, he's in New York on business, and what he'd been doing when he'd been there on business before is he clearly had gone to Greenwich to, to her grave, to Robin's grave, uh, and it had not gone this particular time. Uh, and then he wrote a letter to his mother uh, about the, the four sons. It's now George W., Jeb, Neil, and Marvin, and this is the letter. There is about our house a need. The running, pulsating restlessness of the four boys needs a counterpart. We need some starch crisp frocks to go with all our blue jeans and helmets. We need some soft blonde hair to offset those crew cuts. We need a dollhouse to stand firm against our forts and rackets and baseball cards. We need a legitimate Christmas angel, one who doesn't have cuffs beneath the dress. We need someone who's afraid of frogs. We need someone to cry when I get mad, not argue. We need a little one who can kiss without leaving egg or jam or gum. We need a girl. We had one once. She'd fight and cry and play and make her way just like the rest. But there was about her a certain softness. She was patient. Her hugs were just a little less wiggly. Like them, she'd climb in to sleep with me, but somehow she'd fit. She'd stand beside our bed till I felt her there. Silently and comfortable, she'd put those precious fragrant locks against my chest and fall asleep. Her peace made me feel strong and so very important. My daddy had a caress, a certain ownership, which touched a slightly different spot than the high dad I love so much. But she is still with us. We need her, and yet we have her. We can't touch her, and yet we can feel her. We hope she'll stay in our house for a long, long time. When I, in the course of interviewing the president, <clears throat> I asked him to read that out loud to me, and <clears throat> he broke down long before he finished in, with distinctly physical sobs, so much so that his chief of staff, whose office was next door, heard what was going on and came in. And she asked me, she, she said, why did you want President Bush to read that? And I said, because if you want to know someone's heart, and before I could finish the sentence, the president said, you have to know what breaks it. And he knew where my sentence was going yeah. in a yeah. way that maybe even I didn't. It obviously reveals a lot to us about his emotions. And in some ways, the reason I, I say it for me, in some ways it was the center of the book, is because it's certainly the rawest that we see him. Um, and recognize how deeply, deeply, deeply this man feels, this man who's often been kind of right. this figure that we don't know and understand. Right. You know, the man who yeah, who seemed to be out of touch at a supermarket scanner yeah. or, you know, looking at his watch yeah. and, and all that. that. That All that's, I mean, politics is unfair. He knows that. Uh, but to caricature him uh, as an out-of-touch aristocrat is to miss the core of a really fascinating president. Well, the other thing that is wonderful about that letter is this is the guy who people don't think is very articulate. Oh, I that know. That is a beautifully oh, written letter. Absolutely. It's gorgeous imagery. Absolutely. He totally gets it. And and, and did it all his life. I mean, wrote, wrote, wrote wonderful letters. Um, was unable, I think, to articulate his emotion verbally, but he wrote incredibly well and my grandfather was like this um my grandfather would no more tell you something uh of an emotional nature that then he could fly uh but he wrote letters uh that were affecting i think it's, again i think it's a generational thing at, at one point richard nixon wanted to bring george bush into the, the to the white house as an aide i assume he would have been in the inner circle to work for, work for bob Haldeman. with bob Haldeman, john ehrlichman and instead, he decides to send him to the U.N. To the U.N. What would have happened to the career of George oh Herbert Walker Bush if he'd been in the White House? With the tapes rolling. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, no, I think it's, it's one of those wonderful counterfactual moments. Uh, can you imagine a, a, a Nixon White House aide? It was close enough. I mean, when Bush became chairman of the RNC two years later. Uh but working for Bob Haldeman, I mean, most of those guys went to prison. Um, now, I think Bush would have done the right thing and all that. 
but he, by his guilt by association, uh, having been an assistant to the president. Uh, and wonderfully, there's a there's a, a dorky little detail in here. Uh, one of the reasons Nixon agreed to send him to uh, New York was that he wanted Bush to actually live in Connecticut, establish residency, and then run for the Senate from Connecticut, uh, since Bush had lost twice in Texas. Uh, it shows that Nixon never drew a non-political breath. Okay, so uh, now let's go to 1976. Bush is at this point head of the CIA. Jimmy Carter is the Democratic nominee uh, for president, and uh, he asks for a national security briefing or for a global security briefing, and George Bush comes to Plains, Georgia. Yep. What's that experience President Carter, uh, Governor Carter at the time, uh, was the first nominee, we think, to ask for this. Uh, Even before he was the nominee, he wanted these briefings, and Bush gave them to him. Uh, President Ford agreed, and Bush delivered them uh, in person, uh, usually with the team. but once Carter wins, uh, Bush calls him and resigns. Uh, but then, w- on a visit to Plains, reopens the question about whether he, Bush, should stay on for a year or so as director of the CIA. Carter showed no interest, and the conversation moved on. President Carter told me, actually, I, I was in Plains. I went and saw him teach Sunday school. Uh, it was a Sunday uh And um, then that afternoon, I went over to interview him for this book, and he said, George Bush was sitting exactly where you're sitting, on the couch, uh, on their house. house. Um, And if I had acceded to his request, he would never have been president, because a Carter administration official would not have found his way— Favor in the Republican Party. —to a ticket in 1980. Well, there was some foreshadowing that Carter might not keep him on in that job, because he had a little conversation with Miss Lillian when he was down there during the campaign. Miss Lillian told the New York (laughs) Times that that Jimmy was going to get rid of all the Republicans, including Bush. Uh, But he appreciated strong women. Uh, Bush Bush understood that. So let's move forward. Uh, George Bush obviously won the presidency in 1988. Served one term, four years in the White House. In a couple of sentences, how do you sum up those four years? Well, it was eight years of action compressed into four. (laughs) Uh, Domestically, he passed the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Clean Air Act, the 1990 budget deal, which set up the surpluses of the 1990s. Uh, In foreign policy, he dealt with Tiananmen Square, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the first Gulf War, the end of the Cold War. Uh, the end of the Bolshevik Re- Re- Revolution uh, on Christmas Day, 1991. He negotiated NAFTA, um, and he reunified Germany. Uh, and his term can be pretty safely bifurcated into two. Um, the first two years were enormously productive. Uh, the last two were less so. Um, we went into a, a mild but persistent recession. The recovery was not strong. Uh, 1992 was a perfect storm of bad news for him. Uh, Pat Buchanan ran against him, uh, challenged him, won 40% in New Hampshire. And and Bill Clinton is one of the most talented politicians in American history. And so just everywhere he turned, everywhere Bush turned uh, in 1992, he just was not, nothing was working. Let's take another break. When we return, more with John Meacham about the life of George Herbert Walker Bush. This is Political Rewind. Welcome back to this special edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're revisiting a conversation I had with Pulitzer Prize-winning historian John Meacham in January of 2016. That was shortly after the publication of his book, Destiny and Power, The American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush. When we left off, Meacham had just described the circumstances that led to Bush's loss to Bill Clinton in the 1992 presidential race. As Meacham describes, it was a harsh blow to Bush, who felt he needed a second term to accomplish all of his goals for the country. At that time, I was covering presidential politics for WSB-TV in Atlanta, and I'd spent a lot of time reporting on George Bush, 41, on the campaign trail in both 88 and 92, and in the White House. One of the most unusual episodes in my career came on Election Eve in 1992, The Bush campaign contacted me that evening and said that President Bush wanted to do one last interview with me before voting began the next day. We managed to connect by telephone. 
Hello, Bill. How are you? Well, here we are for the last political rally for myself that we'll ever attend, and it's very exciting. This is my last, last interview before the election, and I'm very pleased it's with you. It turns out that was the last interview President Bush ever gave as a candidate for office. As he and I talked, no matter his words, he sounded to me like a man resigned to defeat. Because one of the most poignant sections of Meacham's book is Bush's reaction to the 92 loss, I played him a short section from the interview. I've never wavered. Uh, I have never seen the national press as ugly. We got this bumper sticker, annoy the media, re-elect Bush. And I know that sounds, some must be skeptical as they listen to pollster after pollster decreeing otherwise. But all I say is the voters of Georgia have it, Georgia have it in their hands tomorrow. I hope they'll go and vote for George Bush based on trust, character, world peace, and domestic progress. This is my last last interview before the election, and I'm very pleased it's with you. One night after he and I did that interview, he's sitting again. He's, he's in Houston. Mm-hmm. Clinton has been declared the winner. Barbara is asleep, sleeping. Yeah. And he goes into what, his office? He goes into, you know, he stayed at the... They, until they built a house that they're still in, uh, they stayed at the Houstonian Hotel. Okay. And a suite, uh, suite 271, uh, showing that I've spent too much time on this, that I know that. <laughs> and um, went back in, went back into the living room, and he dictates that he can't believe he just lost to a draft dodger. He whispers. He's whispering. Yeah. Doesn't want to disturb her, and he's just, his, his voice is giving out. What's so wonderful about the scene, though, is that even in the dark, even at the lowest moment, he tries to look ahead. This is 12.15 a.m. Central Standard Time. I ache and I now must think. How do you keep your chin up, keep your head up through a couple of difficult days ahead? He kept his voice low. Barbara, his devoted wife of 47 years, was asleep back in the bedroom. Quote, I think of our country and the people that are hurting, and there is so much we didn't do. And yes, progress that we made. But no, the job is not finished, and that kills me. But then at the end of the entry, he says this, Be strong, be kind, be generous of spirit, be understanding. Let people know how grateful you are. Don't get even. Comfort the ones I've hurt and let down. Say your prayers and ask for God's understanding and strength. Finish with a smile and with some gusto. Do what's right and finish strong. So even at the worst moment, he talked himself back into the game. So after all the time over the years you spent with George H.W. Bush, after absorbing, interviewing other people, reading the histories of the presidency as he lived it in his earlier career, what did you come away from this uh, whole experience thinking about him? That he's an emotionally complex man who had the country's interests at heart. In the end, he tried to put the country first within the human limitations that ambition and appetite give all of us. Given the field that we are looking at right now, will we ever see his likes again? No. No, he, 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 we damn near didn't the first time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, no, we've gone, from, we've gone from a man who could barely talk about himself to a front-runner who can talk about nothing but himself. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to be sentimental about it and all that, but it was only a quarter century ago. You know, so it's only been 25 years less since they called you and wanted to do the last yeah. interview. Yeah. You know, that's that's it's just the day before yesterday. It's like talking about JFK in the middle of the Reagan years. The lesson I hope we can take away from his presidency, from his life, is that a good people can be in in the, the we we should reward good people in the arena. And he didn't mind reaching across the aisle. Now the middle way is not always the right way. But big national progress has historically happened in this country when people have cooperated more than they have been in perpetual conflict with one another. And Bush's life is a testament to consensus and compromise in the best sense of those terms. We recorded that conversation with John Meacham in January 2016 after the publication of his biography of George H.W. Bush. Now, Let's listen to an extended excerpt from Meacham's stirring eulogy of the president delivered at the National Cathedral earlier this week. The story was almost over, even before it had fully begun. 
Shortly after dawn on Saturday, September 2nd, 1944, Lieutenant Junior Grade George Herbert Walker Bush, joined by two crewmates, took off from the USS San Jacinto to attack a radio tower on Chichijima. As they approached the target, the air was heavy with flak. The plane was hit. Smoke filled the cockpit. Flames raced across the wings. My God, Lieutenant Bush thought, this thing's gonna go down. Yet he kept the plane in its 35-degree dive, dropped his bombs, and then roared off out to sea, telling his crewmates to hit the silk. Following protocol, Lieutenant Bush turned the plane so they could bail out. Only then did Bush parachute from the cockpit. The wind propelled him backward, and he gashed his head on the tail of the plane as he flew through the sky. He plunged deep into the ocean, bobbed to the surface, and flopped onto a tiny raft. His head bleeding, his eyes burning, his mouth and throat raw from salt water. The future 41st President of the United States was alone. Sensing that his men had not made it, he was overcome. He felt the weight of responsibility as a nearly physical burden, and he wept. Then, at four minutes shy of noon, a submarine emerged to rescue the downed pilot. George Herbert Walker Bush was safe. The story, his story and ours, would go on by God's grace. Through the ensuing decades, President Bush would frequently ask, nearly daily, he'd ask himself, why me? Why was I spared? And in a sense, the rest of his life was a perennial effort to prove himself worthy of his salvation on that distant morning. To him, his life was no longer his own. There were always more missions to undertake, more lives to touch, and more love to give. And what a headlong race he made of it all. He never slowed down. On the primary campaign trail in New Hampshire once, he grabbed the hand of a department store mannequin asking for votes. When he realized his mistake, he said, never know, gotta ask. <laughs> you can hear the voice, can't you? As Dana Carvey said, the key to a Bush 41 impersonation is Mr. Rogers trying to be John Wayne. <laughs> George Herbert Walker Bush was America's last great soldier statesman, a 20th century founding father. He governed with virtues that most closely resemble those of Washington and of Adams, of TR and of FDR, of Truman and of Eisenhower, of men who believed in causes larger than themselves. Six foot two, handsome, dominant in person, President Bush spoke with those big strong hands, making fists to underscore points a master of what Franklin Roosevelt called the science of human relationships. He believed that to whom much was given, much is expected. And because life gave him so much, he gave back again and again and again. He stood in the breach in the Cold War against totalitarianism. He stood in the breach in Washington against unthinking partisanship. He stood in the breach against tyranny and discrimination, and on his watch, 
a wall fell in Berlin. A dictator's aggression did not stand. And doors across America opened to those with disabilities. And in his personal life, he stood in the breach against heartbreak and hurt, always offering an outstretched hand, a warm word, a sympathetic tear. If you were down, he would rush to lift you up. And if you were soaring, he would rush to savor your success. Strong and gracious, comforting and charming, loving and loyal, he was our shield in danger's hour. Now, of course, there was ambition, too, loads of that. To serve, he had to succeed. To preside, he had to prevail. Politics, he once admitted, isn't a pure undertaking. Not if you want to win, it's not. An imperfect man, he left us a more perfect union. It must be said that for a keenly intelligent statesman of stirring, almost unparalleled private eloquence, public speaking was not exactly a strong suit. Fluency in English, President Bush once remarked, is something that I'm often not accused of. <laughs> Looking ahead to the 88 election, he observed, inarguably, it's no exaggeration to say that the undecideds could go one way or the other. <laughs> and late in his presidency, he allowed that we're enjoying sluggish times, but we're not enjoying them very much. <laughs> his tongue may have run amok at moments, but his heart was steadfast. His life code, as he said, was tell the truth, don't blame people, be strong, do your best, try hard, forgive, stay the course. And that was and is the most American of creeds. Abraham Lincoln's better angels of our nature and George H.W. Bush's thousand points of light are companion verses in America's national hymn. For Lincoln and Bush both called on us to choose the right over the convenient, to hope rather than to fear, and to heed not our worst impulses, but our best instincts. In this work, he had the most wonderful of allies in Barbara Pierce Bush, his wife of 73 years. He called her Bar, the Silver Fox, and when the situation warranted, the Enforcer. He was the only boy she ever kissed. Her children, Mrs. Bush liked to say, always wanted to throw up when they heard that. In a letter to Barbara during the war, young George H.W. Bush had written, I love you, precious, with all my heart, and to know that you love me means my life. How lucky our children will be to have a mother like you. And as they will tell you, they surely were. As Vice President, Bush once visited a children's leukemia ward in Krakow. Thirty-five years before, he and Barbara had lost a daughter, Robin, to the disease. In Krakow, a small boy wanted to greet the American Vice President. Learning that the child was sick with the cancer that had taken Robin, Bush began to cry. To his diary later that day, the Vice President said this. My eyes flooded with tears, and behind me was a bank of television cameras. And I thought, 
I can't turn around. I can't dissolve because of personal tragedy in the face of the nurses that give of themselves every day. So I stood there looking at this little guy, tears running down my cheek, hoping he wouldn't see. But if he did, hoping he'd feel that I loved him. That was the real George H.W. Bush, a loving man with a big, vibrant, all-enveloping heart. And so we ask as we commend his soul to God, and as he did, why him? Why was he spared? The workings of providence are mysterious, but this much is clear. The George Herbert Walker Bush, who survived that fiery fall into the waters of the Pacific three quarters of a century ago, made our lives and the lives of nations freer, better, warmer, and nobler. That was his mission. That was his heartbeat. And if we listen closely enough, we can hear that heartbeat even now, for it's the heartbeat of a lion, a lion who not only led us, but who loved us. That's why him, that's why he was spared. John Meacham, eulogizing his friend and the subject of his biography, Destiny and Power, the American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush. By now, all of the best words to describe the life and character of President Bush 41 have been used, so as we leave you today, I'll simply say what others have. Having had the good fortune to cover President Bush over the years, I saw him in many circumstances display the kindness, generosity of spirit, and humility that were simply inherent in his nature. His spirit of goodwill made an indelible mark on me, and it's right and good that we've all been given a chance to remember that about him as we celebrate his life this week. I'm Bill Nygut. Political Rewind returns with a new show on Monday at 2.00.